0: Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places.
1: There are things about religion which just make it a very, very powerful promoter of cooperation.
0: The stories in the Bible may have first been given life more than 2,000 years ago, yet they still capture the hearts and minds of so many. A line from series one of the podcast when we spoke to Cardinal Vincent Nichols, the Archbishop of Westminster, The question is why? Why do those words resonate with us so profoundly? Gods, in many various forms, have been part of the human narrative for, uh, well, forever. In modern times, though, there is a lot of talk about religion dying. But will it? Could it ever completely die out? Is religion essential to the human experience? And if so, what would happen without it? Dominic Johnson says our collective belief in supernatural punishment over the millennia has helped to shape the evolution of cooperation. He's a professor from the University of Oxford's Department of Politics and International Relations, and he's the author of God is Watching You. Our producer, Oli Giu has been speaking to him. Chapter One, Destined to Believe It may be strange for some people to hear how religion could have made us more cooperative, because throughout human history, religion has been the cause of countless wars. But just like our friends are all people who we share common ground with, it shouldn't be surprising to learn that we search for commonalities everywhere, that a shared belief has been a vital way of connecting us together. And though we hear about religious decline in the West, that's not true in many other parts of the world where religion is flourishing. So what's going on? We often think only of the cultural element of religion, but a big part of the puzzle, surely, is the evolutionary advantage of it. 20 years ago, when Dominic began research in this field, there wasn't much interest, but that's changing. So the question is, is it natural for humans to believe in a higher being? Is it ingrained in us? I
1: think the answer is yes, but it's important to break that down a little bit. And there's two sort of theories, if you like, in the literature on this. Most people agree that there's some natural element to it, and that our underlying cognition is very receptive to religious ideas, things like purpose, design, agency. But then there's a split about whether that's kind of an accident, or whether it's there because there was an evolutionary selection pressure to favour it. So... The two camps are the adaptationists and the byproduct theorists. So the adaptationists are the ones who say, actually maybe beliefs which are underlying religious um, beliefs and behaviours specifically evolved um, because they brought us advantages. The byproduct theorists agree that those same things are there, but they say, well, they're just accidents of um, adaptations which were really meant for other things. Um, So an example would be, it's very valuable to be able to assign cause and effect in the environment to attribute cause to events and that's clearly highly adaptive but we're very good at that and maybe there's just overspill we're constantly looking for cause and effect and we see it even when there isn't one so it's sort of an accident that we then attribute certain causes and effects to supernatural agents even when there isn't any uh, real cause and effect.
2: If, If there is an evolutionary bias to assuming that we have to behave a certain way while we're on this earth could that potentially cross over to the to the rest of the animal kingdom do you think
1: my book was very specifically about supernatural punishment the idea that of the many things that religion does um it's quite common for people to believe that there's supernatural consequences for their actions and in particular negative ones which stop you doing selfish things and In fact, there have been some studies which are suggestive that this is not just a human trait. So this is where arguments would start. But for example, um, Skinner, the famous psychologist, had an experiment with pigeons where he would um, deliver food regardless of where they pecked in the cage. But they started to believe that pecking um, was associated with the food coming out, even though it wasn't actually. So he called this like a superstitious like behaviour that they couldn't work out what the actual cause and effect was, but they sort of kept um, behaving as if it was causing the food to be delivered. So that's some empirical evidence that maybe some kind of overspill in cause and effect reasoning occurs in animals. But there's also an interesting theoretical paper by two biologists, Kevin Foster and Hannah Koko. And they pointed out that, you know, one of the most important things in nature is to avoid predation. And if you are just accurate in when you detect a predator, then you're sometimes going to make mistakes. Sometimes you'll think there's a predator when there isn't, and sometimes you won't think there's a predator and there is. And you don't want to make that mistake. But the two mistakes have different costs. So assuming that there's a predator when there isn't um, is not that costly. You run back to your hole, um, and you know, cost you a little bit of time. But the other error is really significant, right? You were, you hear a noise, you think, oh, there's not nothing to worry about, and you get eaten. So natural selection probably favoured a very strong bias to overestimate the possibility there's a predator in the environment. So any little rustle in the bushes, for example, um, perhaps should be interpreted as a predator because that's the way to err on the side of caution and avoid being eaten. So they actually presented a really nice mathematical model showing that overestimating the possible presence of an agent in the environment, even if it's invisible, would be adaptive. So they argued that superstitious or superstitious-like behaviour is probably adaptive in many animals.
2: So actually, our desire to sort of do good or, or behave in a certain way was compounded by our massive brains and our ability to be super creative. And so therefore we uh, ended up extrapolating out much, much further than perhaps other animals would have. And that in turn perhaps led to the belief in, de- in a deity or, or two. Yeah,
1: that that's certainly one hypothesis. And, you know, the sophistication is where it gets complicated. Um, and it's also where we cross a bridge between kind of underlying cognitive adaptations for being receptive to religious-like ideas that we talked about before, and then crossing the bridge into religion as a cultural manifestation, which is much more complex. You still have evolution involved because it's an example of of cultural evolution, but then you get much more complex specific narratives and ideas about who it is that's causing these effects, um, or what it is, and why they're causing them. So it gets much more complicated, but yeah, the underlying idea is that there's a sort of rationale and adaptive logic for why it would make sense to be worried about our own selfish actions in the environment um, having some kinds of consequences, even if um, we attribute them to invisible agents. Um, If we're constantly worried about being watched um, when we're conducting selfish acts, then maybe we're less likely to do them in the first place, and that can avoid getting into real trouble with material consequences in in the real world. Um, But the other aspect to all of this is why does it have this moral element of good and bad? The animal examples we discussed were just over attributing cause and effects. They weren't necessarily good or bad. So the other unique aspect of of humans is that it at some point along the line took on this moral valence. And there's lots of arguments about when that occurred and why that occurred.
0: Chapter 2, Two Sides of the Same Coin The story of belief is a strong one. To those who have faith, it doesn't feel just like a biological compulsion. It runs much deeper than that. Faith is a narrative that governs many aspects of a person's daily life. Matters of the spiritual are metaphysical and can't be explained by conventional science. So for some, to hear a compelling argument for the evolutionary basis of religion might be a hard pill to swallow. But actually, the two schools of thought don't have to exclude the other. They can run in tandem.
1: This is why it gets interesting talking to theologians, because On the one hand, as a scientist, you kind of think, well, if we've got an explanation, a hypothesis at least, for why human brains tend to believe in supernatural agents, then we can explain it away. We don't need to entertain the idea that it's real. It's just uh, a logical outcome of sophisticated human brains. That's sort of Richard Dawkins' kind of uh, answer. Um, But actually, if you talk to a theologian, they'll say, well, that doesn't tell us anything about the existence of God, because um, maybe evolution was God's way of creating life on earth so they can sort of um, uh, Avoid the explaining it away argument um, with a totally different perspective. So actually it it technically doesn't um, Eliminate the, the, um, the kind of theological story But it does of course challenge it because it means we have alternative explanations for why people believe that there's a God or gods or some supernatural agency
2: but, but equally, whilst challenging that, it also challenges the view of atheists because, as we've just mentioned, um, although they might not believe in God, pretty much everybody on this planet believes in all manner of superstitions, not least the fact that they need to be a good person, um, usually for some unknown reason, whether it's karma-based or whether it's just because they think, while I'm on this earth, I, I need to behave well because other people deserve that of me. Um, So atheists even often do hold those same sorts of feelings and emotions, perhaps even unwittingly?
1: Yeah, I think so, absolutely. And I had a whole chapter in the book dedicated to this. I called it The Problem of Atheists, um, because it's a problem for any theory which argues religion is a kind of evolved adaptation, because, well, then how do you explain the atheists? Um, But it also speaks to this problem of, are atheists a problem in a society which is otherwise religious? Do, Do they undermine cooperation and so on? But the, the, the core point I was trying to make there is exactly as you suggested, that when you look at the data, and there's lots of psychological experiments on this, people behave in all sorts of superstitious ways, regardless of their personal beliefs about any particular religion. So we're, we're, we're superstitious and we can't help it. And of course, lots of people claim that they're not, but then you put them in a lab and you can demonstrate that they do actually reveal superstitious um, cause and effect reasoning You know, there's lots of variations. Some people are more superstitious than others, but it seems to be a phenomenon of human nature and not necessarily much to do with whether you're religious or not. But that would make sense, right? Because we talked about these underlying cognitive dispositions, which make us receptive to religious ideas like agency and purpose and design. So among atheists, they might not subscribe to any particular religion, but they're nevertheless you know experiencing the same things that all human brains do and the cogs are whirring away in there and making uh, connections even when they don't really exist so it makes perfect sense and the psychologists are you know not particularly surprised the tricky thing is you know what's the connection between superstition and religion and of course many people see them as entirely different phenomena but I would say that underlying both of them are some kind of similar features which um, support both so at least to some extent they're they're related and this then makes sense atheists say they're atheists but are they really and there's actually lots of really interesting polls um showing that quite a high proportion of people even in secular western states like the uk have all sorts of um superstitious beliefs so they actually you know declare not including all the ones they don't declare and there's loads of famous examples tony blair always um wore his lucky shoes to prime minister questions time. And, Barack Obama carried around his lucky poker chip and all this kind of thing. So lots of examples out there and people have their own stories, but it does seem to be something very visible that we, we can't escape from very easily.
2: Do you think um, age has any part to play in the manifestation of our superstitions and religious beliefs?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So the 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 kind of common intuition is that as you get older and you sort of approach older life and death, then it becomes more salient and people may become more religious. Um, I've seen some data on this and and it actually is a little more complicated and in different populations you see different dynamics and for example, some aspects of the millennial generation has a very kind of spiritual side to it and so on. So it seems to vary, but there's certainly some logic and some support for the idea that it increases with age. There's also right down at the other end of the spectrum some interesting ideas about children when they're first born and in their first years of life. You know, what do they tend to believe? There's a book called Born Believers by Justin Barrett, which argues that actually before you even start telling them anything about religion, young children are actually what another psychologist called intuitive theists. They sort of can't help but explain the world in a religious-like manner. For example, they say that clouds are for raining. And they also entertain very easily the idea of invisible agents. Um, but again, this changes between young children and older children. And of course, it's somewhere in that transition, they're gaining so much information from the environment and their culture that it becomes very hard to disentangle what's going on. But there's some nice experiments on this. Jesse Bering has done an experiment, for example, with uh, Teddy's puppet shows. And um, he has an alligator eat a little mouse. And then he asks the children, how, what, what, how does the mouse feel? After being eaten, and um, they totally understand the concept that you know the body is dead, but they can't let go of the idea that the mind is still alive. So they still ascribe thoughts and feelings um, to the mouse, even though it's dead. So there's clearly something about you know the developmental psychology of young children that um, it's very natural for them to acquire a lot of these religious um, ideas. But there's a lot of arguments about to what extent that means they would become religious um, on their own without any cultural input.
2: So talking about the cultural aspect, actually, do we, have we seen any cultures that haven't or, or have never adopted some form of religious practice?
1: The typical line here is that, no, there aren't any. And instead, people comment on the universality of religion in some form or other. People sometimes get upset when you say religion because they say, well, what do you mean exactly? And, you know, can you really ascribe religion... As a word, to the particular beliefs of a given you know indigenous society somewhere or other, but on the whole, people are agreed that you know some form of religious beliefs and behaviors are common to all cultures all around the world for as far back as we can see in human history, and also including indigenous sort of foraging societies which haven't had contact with um, the outside world when um, anthropologists have been to study them, they typically have some kind of religion as well so the answer is no not really i mean people will sometimes come up with examples of typically movements that tried to have a kind of non-religious philosophical um, ideology um, but they're pretty rare and not very um, prominent in history of course there are many modern ones um, like humanists and so on but up until modern times it was pretty uh, unheard of People talked about atheists long ago in ancient times, but that usually meant people who didn't believe in the same God as us, some other group who believed in something else. So it does seem to be universal. Anthropologist Harvey Whitehouse at Oxford has sort of come up with a, a set of characteristics, which he calls you know, recurrent uh, characteristics of, of societies all around the world, which have many features which we'd recognise, like beliefs in an afterlife and um, supernatural rewards and punishment and rituals, and all of this kind of thing. So there does seem to be something pretty universal about it.
0: Chapter three, starting over. There are clearly strong evolutionary, biological, and cultural advantages to the existence of religion. So what would happen if we just eradicated it, wiped it off the face of the earth? Many of the stories we've grown up with stem from religion and the narrative of society as we know it was built by religious beliefs. So can we get along with each other without it? Should we even attempt to?
1: So as to the first thing, we we talked already about this sort of natural inclination to believe in something. And, And I think that is something that would not be possible to eradicate. These are Instincts, if you like, there are cognitive dispositions which make us receptive to religious ideas. Things like cause and effect, and agency in the environment and a sense of purpose. So I think um, we wouldn't be able to not have religion to some extent because people would carry on um, experiencing, if you like, spiritual um, thoughts of some kind or another. Um, And they would gradually, you know, turn that into a a narrative um, when they shared it with others. There are pros and cons here. We know from history and from things going on today that religion has many good things about it. It's, I argue, in the book, very a very powerful promoter of cooperation. It's an unbelievable social glue. Um, it does a lot of good. But as others point out, of course, it can fan the flames of conflict and even cause conflicts. So it has negative sides too. So what's the net benefit? And I think it's very hard to predict. There's good things and bad things and sometimes one comes to the fore. But one thing we can say quite clearly I think is that generally speaking religion is good for the in-group. It's a way of binding the in-group together so they can cooperate better, solve collective action problems, um, have solidarity, share the same narrative. The problem often comes between groups and that's where you get religion becoming a problem because it increases competition and conflict between groups
2: and um in the in the article that i um, read about your book the author said that belief in supernatural reward and punishment promotes social cooperation in a way nothing else can match so what you've said just there could mean do you think that society would untangle and unravel completely if it was just to disappear
1: in my book, I'm, I'm making this argument that there's something special about um, supernatural punishment that not by chance it's very good at promoting cooperation. And of course, the, the counterpoint is usually, well, you know, look at Western secular societies they uh, are doing very nicely. Thank you very much, um, particularly, say, Scandinavia, where religion is um, on the face of it in strong decline and nevertheless, very harmonious. Societies with strong social welfare and so on. So it seems like you don't need God. And of course, this is a huge argument. You know, do you need God to be good? But um, the point here is simply that while you can have secular means of promoting cooperation, um, we don't really know how good they are on their own. What we do know is that they're they're fundamentally limited, right? So it, I, in the book, I compared an idealized God and then a system of law. And in terms of surveillance, right, the secular legal system can never be perfect. It's always going to be incomplete. It's never going to know exactly what everyone's doing. But the interesting thing about God and gods is that they are often omniscient and they do know everything that's going on. And then if you look at what levels of punishment they can administer, again, in legal systems, secular legal systems, it's always limited to some extent. You can put people in prison, Many countries don't have a death penalty anymore. It's somewhat limited, but in the religious case, it's unlimited. It's infinite. So, you know, an eternity in hell is a pretty severe punishment compared to anything a secular institution could could uh, deliver. So I go on with some additional points, but you get the picture that, at least in an idealized form, there are things about religion which just make it a very, very powerful promoter of cooperation and deterrent against um, selfish or anti-social behavior, um, which secular systems just can't match. So in the book, I just argue that maybe secular systems have lots of good things about them, but actually in combination, they are good together. So you kind of get the optimal social glue, if you like, if there's a little bit of supernatural punishment beliefs still around, even among the atheists, um, on top of any secular systems of law. So that's the idea, that uh, there's something special about religion that is very hard to match with secular alternatives. So a lot of people uh, talk about the fact that what appears to be secular legal systems, for example, are actually based in Christian principles in the West. So we think they're secular, but actually they've got really deep, important roots in religion. Same with some international law, so just war theory, for example, about you know when is it okay to fight another nation, and if you do, how should you fight them? That literature has developed you know very much out of um, Christian writing as well. Of course, it's changed a lot, but you can't just make up these rules out of nothing. they've got to come from somewhere, and the underlying ideas and um, values that inspire them can be traced back to religious roots. So I think, um, yeah, in human societies in general, religion has offered a um, a kind of foundation, if you like, a way of thinking about things which can then support secular institutions on top. And of course, in in history, we know that religion and politics deliberately tried to separate from each other in the 17th century. And to some extent, that's been successful. But it's, you know, clearly not been complete. And part of that is just you know, path dependence and historical legacy and lots of interactions and um, networks, which just can't be cleaved apart. But I think the other reason is actually that they kind of, they're both necessary, they both have been necessary in in society. And interestingly, you know, even if that's not true, it's amazing that people believe that to be the case. So if you ask people, you know, is religion necessary for moral behavior in polls, um, you find that um, it varies across countries, of course, but often a great majority of people believe that is the case. So maybe for people to, you know, have a sense of trust and the society is working, at least for many people, you know, religion is crucial.
2: Do you think there is a difference between uh, simple religious beliefs and uh, the kind of the parallel between atheists and then those who take religion to a different level, people like priests who give up certain aspects of themselves in order to follow religion or monks perhaps or nuns?
1: There's been some work on this as well, not by me, but the the argument there is, you know, is there a sort of a different explanation? There's the masses who say they believe this and the other and show up to certain religious um, services and so on but they don't have anywhere near the commitment of a a church leader or um, someone who as you say dedicates their lives and and endures many personal sacrifices to practice their faith so it seems kind of puzzling but um, there's an argument that there's a sort of frequency dependence that as long as you have some individuals who are leading the way, demonstrating the ideals of a religion and giving people a model to follow. You only need a few of those for the masses to then kind of gravitate around them or to follow a certain kind of example and, and stay on the straight and narrow. And then there's the question of, well, from an evolutionary perspective, how do you explain that? It's maybe good for the masses, but how do you explain the, the advantage for the, the few? who endure these additional personal sacrifices. And uh, David Sloan Wilson, for example, has written about this, and he talks about ascetics in particular religions and points out that there's just different ways of living. So while many people can you know, have their own jobs and earn their own money and get by as everyone else does, there are other niches which can be exploited. Um, people who make costly sacrifices but then are in other ways looked after by the community because of their special role. So if you like there's space in the environment for different ways of living and together they kind of form a sum which is greater than the parts by having these models or masses if you like and then the masses. So it gets complicated but there's certainly some ideas about why that might actually make sense rather than being a puzzle.
0: A massive thank you then to Dominic Johnson and roving reporter Oli Guiou for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learnt? Belief systems are a fundamental part of the human experience. Imagine how a person might respond if all of their beliefs, religious or otherwise, were completely stripped from their life. Could you design a character like that? We love to have an individual motive for the actions of our characters, but in life there will always be people who are willing to make sacrifices simply for the good of others. In the case of priests or nuns, there may be no individual gain at all. Maybe the character in your story who's willing to make sacrifices isn't looking for a personal reward. And finally, religious belief is common to all cultures around the world, but what if there was a culture that didn't believe in a god and never did? What would that look like? Perhaps you could take on the challenge of creating that place, that world, through your writing. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. And if you'd like to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine. New episodes release weekly. Please like us and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Goodbye for now. Stay safe. And keep writing.